Well, good morning and happy Thanksgiving. It's good to be among God's people and it's great to be here at His Hill. And I thank the Lord that He put it on, his heart, on Charlie's heart to give to our ministry in the Philippines. It's led by a young couple, a young man named Jack Venezuela and his wife Grace, and they're doing a wonderful work. The Philippines is largely Catholic, and it is common in public schools to have a, an assembly where they're able to come in and have a service and give a clear testimony of Christ. They also offer alternative learning programs for students and actually train teachers in that as well. And as Charlie said, uh, Dave Hobson had, you know, these students come to a student center and they would minister to them there and share the gospel. We were in Tauernhof in Austria this past spring and the directors of the works around the world got together and we shared with one another. And Jack was in my group. He had come alone, his wife couldn't come because they had just had or were just having their first child. But it was really his first time among the Torchbearer family in that setting. And as we were sharing, one of the topics was how do you rest effectively in the ministry? And honestly, we were sharing about how many days we have off and how we take vacations and what we do. And Jack was silent during that time. And he said, you know, where I come from, we can't even thinking about doing those kinds of things, taking days off and vacation. Honestly, I felt ashamed. And they are doing a wonderful work. And Jack also told me that he and his wife, Grace, were renting an apartment. And he was using public transportation to get to their place of ministry. And it would take him four hours or more to get to the place of ministry, and then four hours or more to get back home. That concerned me. And praise God, their renting facilities are an apartment now much closer to where they do their ministry. And my desire is to help them uh, provi uh, provide permanent accommodations for them someday. Torchbearers has a piece of property in downtown Manila. It's located within the context of these schools that they visit. And it would be my desire someday to be able to build a building where they can bring these students. They have one uh, right now, but it's not sufficient for them, but also to provide accommodation for their staff. And um, the funds that we'll be giving uh, to them will go to support that ministry. We're gonna be doing the same thing at our Christmas concert at Bodensehof when I get back in December as well. So I thank you. Uh, for anything that you give on their behalf. Let me pray. Father, when we think of our day-to-day uh, -day of thanksgiving, I also want to ask that you would continue to equip uh, Jack and his wife Grace and the team that they have around them. We want to commit them to you, Lord, and I would ask that you would call workers to the harvest Lord, continue to give them open doors to share the gospel with these young people. Lord, soften hearts and make those appointments that a hungry heart would meet a staff member who would be willing to share Christ with them. And Lord, it's my desire to help them even more than we have. And Lord, that you would provide what's necessary to give them a home and to provide a place where these students can come 
regularly, day by day. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning, and I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're here and that we can count on your spirit to lead us into the truth. And so we do that now with thanksgiving. In your name, amen. I want to read John chapter 15 and read verses 3 and 4. Of course, this week in our sessions together, we're considering abiding in Christ. And this morning, we're going to take a look at that command of Jesus in chapter 15 and verse 4, where he says, abide in me and I in you. But let me read the context in John chapter 15 and verses 3 and 4. Jesus starts in verse three and he said, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Verse four, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So first of all, we wanna consider what Christ means when he says abide in me. We mustn't forget and confuse being in Christ and abiding in Christ. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, God has placed us in Christ. That's what the Father does. He unifies me with Christ through new birth. I am in Christ. And often the scriptures speak in spatial terms. And, and so we can think of it in that way because God knows that um, we need to understand spiritual truth sometimes through um, pictures from nature. Let me take this one. When I was born physically, I was born into oxygen. Everywhere I go, wherever I travel, oxygen is available to me. And to be in Christ means that the Father has made all of Christ available to me. That's what it means to be in Christ. You have all of Christ available to you. Everywhere and at all times, I may draw from him. Well, that may be the case, but oxygen also needs to be in me. That's part of the, the, the equation as well. Not only do I need to be in oxygen and continually draw from the availability of oxygen, but oxygen needs to be in me, doesn't it? I suppose if you were a, a man who was starving, it would be good to have food with you. But food needs to be in you to nourish you. And that is exactly what God has given us in the person of Christ. He is not just with us, he has come to dwell in us through new birth. In John chapter 16 and verse 7, Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. And you read that initially and you think, well, when you think of the disciples who were with Jesus and Jesus with them in the gospel accounts, sometimes I used to think, well, they had a tremendous advantage over me. I mean, if Jesus was with me like he was with the disciples, I wouldn't have the problems that I have today. Well, Jesus said actually the exact opposite. He said, it's to your advantage that I go away because when I go away, 
I'm going to send the spirit to dwell within you. And Jesus said of that spirit in John 14, 16, he will be with you and he will be in you forever. So if anyone has the advantage, it was the disciples starting in Acts chapter 2 when they, were, when they were filled with the Spirit and 3,000 souls were added to the Lord. Jesus was not just with them, he came to live in them. And now on the basis of that truth, Jesus says, abide in me. Abide in me. And the word abide actually means stand or remain. Just stay where you are. Stay where you are. That is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not something extra special. It's not an opinion to be debated. It's a command to be obeyed. Jesus said, abide in me. Now, John, who wrote the gospel, also wrote his epistles. And he said this about abiding. And it helps me understand more what is involved in this. So if you would look at 1 John chapter 2, excuse me, 1 John chapter 3 and verses 23 and 24. 1 John chapter 3 and verses 23 and 24 we have more light on what it means to abide in Christ. 1 John 3 and verses 23 and 24. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. So there it is. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And number two, love one another. And in doing so, you're obeying him and hence abiding in him. So faith and love are involved in abiding. One is concerned with my relationship with Jesus, and the other is concerned about my relationship with others. So first of all, let's consider faith. And before we even speak about faith, it's critical to understand that all faith that is gonna make a difference in our lives must be preceded by repentance. That's why John the Baptist came. He preached a message of repentance. Jesus, in his first sermon in John chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, preached repentance and faith. The apostles, when they preached in the book of Acts, they preached repentance and faith. And you can't truly exercise faith that is going to make a difference in Christ until we come to the point of repentance. And yesterday, when we were talking about God's greatest gift in showing us how much we need Jesus, that's why that is so necessary. Because when you know that apart from Christ, you can do nothing, that leaves no other option but repentance. And repentance, as many know, is speaking about a change of mind. 
It is a 180 degree turn from me to Christ in a conviction of heart that knows that I need Jesus. First it is internal, but then it becomes external. John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. So repentance is an attitude of mind, but it brings about action. Let me give you one example. And there are many that I could give because I've had to do a lot of repenting and will need to in my life with the Lord. When I came back from Bible school, I went to a, a college called Northwestern College in St. Paul. And this is when the Lord really began to show me the need of repentance. Because before Bible school, I was uh, working, actually it was a tennis club. And our boss said, you know, you can take shoes, clothes, rackets, tennis balls, just write it on a bill and pay it at the end of the month. He trusted us. Well, the fact of the matter was that I went to Bible school with an unpaid bill at my former place of employment. And here I was at college. I was actually in the library wanting to have my quiet time. And while I was doing that, the Lord brought this unpaid bill to mind. It was an unfortunate thought when I was trying to have my quiet time with him. It ruined my quiet time, in fact. And you know what happened? I began to justify myself. That is never a good sign. Because I was saying, nobody's talked to me about this. Furthermore, there's another boss at that place of employment and he knows nothing about this. And furthermore, I'm a poor college student. Whenever we get into a place where we begin debating in our conscience, that's not a good sign. Well, this happened over a few days and finally I broke down and I said, okay, I'll pay the bill. So I go to my former place of employment. It was a new boss. I walked into his office and I said, Dave, you don't know about this, but I left an unpaid bill here when I left my place of employment and I need to give you this check. Do you know what happened? He laughed at me. He said, you didn't have to do that. That's way in the past. What, do you have a bad conscience or something? Yes, I did. And the Lord was not going to let me get away with that. I handed over that check and a thousand pounds was lifted from my back. That's just one example of what repentance means. It's a change of mind, which is internal, but it often will begin to express itself externally. So it's not just feeling sorry about something that you may have done. It's changing your mind in it, about it, and then it is bringing forth fruit. And let me tell you, if you've been brought to a point of repentance, follow through. It'll be the best thing you've ever done. That was just one example for an illustration. There are many more that I could give. But we cannot come to the place of true faith until we have come to the place of repentance. If you'd look up here, sometimes we're preaching faith at the expense of repentance. And so we're having a message, trust Christ, trust Christ, trust Christ, and I'm trying to trust Christ with an unrepentant heart. And that doesn't work. 
And then we're confused afterwards and we say, why isn't the Christian life working? I thought I trusted Christ. Well, I may have been trying to trust him with an unrepentant heart. I didn't want to change my mind and furthermore, I wanted no change that God was expecting from me. So it doesn't work. Faith without repentance that precedes it doesn't work. And it's important that we understand that. God takes the issue of faith much more seriously than we do. Let me give you a couple of examples. Charles mentioned this verse uh, either, uh, well, must have been yesterday. It's actually in, in Romans chapter 14 and verse 23. At the end of that chapter, it says, for whatever is not of faith is sin. Please note, it doesn't say whatever is not of faith is a sin. It says whatever is not of faith is sin. And he is comparing two attitudes of heart. One of, in, uh, one of dependence, that's faith, and one of independence, that's sin. Sin is an attitude. It is a disposition of independence. God loves the sinner. He loves to forgive sins, but he condemns sin. Sin is a disposition of heart that says, I'll do it on my own. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 says, God has condemned sin in the flesh. It's an attitude of independence. It is the opposite of faith, and that's why Scripture says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So either sin or faith is ruling in my heart. And I can be going about different Christian activities in an attitude called sin, doing them independently, of Jesus, and that is extremely tiring because I do it all in my own energy, and it ultimately, it doesn't work. A second passage that talks about the issue of faith is Hebrews chapter three and verses 12 and 13. In Hebrews three, verses 12 and 13, scripture says, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart. Ephesians, excuse me, Hebrews chapter three and verses 12 and 13. The unbelieving heart is the evil heart because unbelief considers Jesus unworthy of my trust. Unbelief says he said it, but didn't mean it. In other words, he's a liar. Unbelief says he said it, but can't fulfill it. Or number three, it says he said it, but he won't do it in my case. That means God has his favorites, and that's not true. The issue of faith is very serious. The unbelieving heart is the evil heart. We need to understand this because the, we tend to think about faith it's something that, you know, some people have more of than others, and I understand that argument, as if it's an option. It's not an option. It's a matter of obedience. And he says, we're to believe in his name. 
if I want something to change at his hill, I don't go to a second year student as great as they are. I go to somebody who has the last name McCall, in particular, Charlie McCall. If I want something to change here at his hill, I go to Charlie. If I want something to change in my life, go to the one who carries the name Jesus. Go to Jesus. I am in him, he is in me, and he has asked me to abide in him. And basically, faith is an attitude of heart that allows somebody else to do something for me. Faith is an attitude of heart that allows somebody else to do something for me. I don't know what it is about my heart, but sometimes I resist somebody doing something for me. I'm sitting in the dining hall at his hill, and a student will suggest, Peter, can I get you something from the dessert table? Do you know what my knee-jerk reaction is? Don't worry about it, I'll take care of it myself. It's one thing to be humbled and know the depravity of your heart. It's another level of humility to know that and then allow something, somebody else to do something for you for nothing. That's humbling. But that's the disposition of faith. Let me take this to another level. How do we practice faith in Christ, abiding in him in a practical way? And I'd like to go really uh, for the majority of the rest of our time together to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 16 to 18. Chapter 18 is up on the, 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 the back of the tent behind me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 16 to 18. This is how we can abide in Christ. This is how we trust him as abiding in him. And actually all these, they're, they're split up into three verses, but it's actually one sentence in the scriptures. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16, we read this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, and then note this, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That's where we are. How do we abide in him? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. Before we get to each one of those phrases, it's interesting that it includes the words always, it includes the word without ceasing, and in everything. Always, without ceasing, with everything. I've noticed this about scripture. The language of scripture is so extreme because the sufficiency of Christ is so complete. And also, it doesn't allow me to fall into the trap where I think that I can consider myself an exception. Scripture does not allow for an exception. It doesn't allow me to come to this passage and say, yeah, but Peter, my, my situation is just too hard. 
it doesn't give us that, that, that freedom. It says always without ceasing and in everything. Friends, we are not the exception to the sufficiency of Christ. First of all, it says rejoice always. If I may be perfectly honest with you, I used to get irritated at that verse because I thought it meant we have to enjoy everything. I thought that it meant that Christians were called upon to call bad things good and be unrealistic about life. That's not what this means. It doesn't mean that I have to uh, enjoy everything, call pain enjoyable. It doesn't mean that I have to call bad things good. A Christian is somebody who faces the hard facts of life and then orders their life by truth. That's who we are. So what does rejoice really mean? Well, when my daughter uh, was in university, she got a letter from the court in Stuttgart that um, was accusing her of something she didn't do. And she opened the letter, and this was somebody wanting to call her to court because she had applied to attend um, a photo shooting called Princess for a Day, and she didn't show up, and so this company was suing her. Anybody who knows my daughter knows that she would not apply to take part in a photo shooting called Princess for a Day. Furthermore, the company's place of residence was in the Jersey Islands. Where is that, Charles? Is it off the, the, the coast of England or France or... Southern Coast, I, we don't hear much about the Jersey Island, but that's where this was supposed to take place. And we saw this letter, and she had a court date, and we didn't know what to do. We talked to a staff member who went to a church where there was a lawyer, and we called him to our home, and we showed him the letter, and he read it, and he said, this is a scam. So don't worry about it. Don't even respond. We said, really? He said, really. Man, was I glad that we had a lawyer on our side. I was rejoicing in that. Was it a pleasant experience to be falsely accused? No. Do you call a bad thing good? No. But we were glad that we weren't alone in it. In 1986, I was invited by a staff member of a mission in Germany called Light in the East, and um, they did missions behind the Iron Curtain. And he invited me to go with him to Romania, and Romania at that time was ruled by a dictator by the name of Ceausescu, who, when the Iron Curtain fell, was murdered uh, with his, well, he was shot, uh, along with his wife on, in front of a live TV camera. I'll never uh, forget that. So I was going to Romania during his reign, 1986, and it was going to be our responsibility and privilege to meet God's people in Romania to find out what they really needed. And the guy I was traveling with had a piece of paper about that big, and it was written in code, and those were the addresses that we were going to visit. We drove 
through Yugoslavia, which was still Yugoslavia at that time, got to the border, and normally you spend a lot of time waiting on the border before you're allowed to go in. They start pushing mirrors under your car, and we were actually called into an interrogation room. That was unsettling for me. My friend took his bag with him. I was not allowed to know where we were going so that I could remain innocent. And the guard on duty, it was a soldier, he took a cassette tape out of my friend's bag and he said, this is propaganda. And my friend said, well, take a listen. You, you know, decide for yourself. Well, he plugged it in and it was Johnny Cash. I've been never more thankful to listen to Johnny Cash at that moment. And my friend said to the soldier, do you like that? He said, yes, I do. Well, you can have it. Then we were on our way across the border. One day, we had driven all day to a very small town, and we were going to meet some Christians there. We got out of our car. It was very poor. These were dirt streets, very poor housing. We got out of our car, started to walk, and then my friend said to me, don't look around. We're going to go to the next intersection, cross the road, and go back to our car and get in. So we did that, made a U-turn, got in the car, and drove away. And I said, what was that about? He said, we were being followed. I was so glad I was with him. I was rejoicing the fact that I wasn't alone. That's what rejoice means. Do I, do I have to call a bad regime good? Do I have to enjoy get being interrogated? No. But you rejoice in the fact that you're not alone in it. And we have somebody available with whom we've been united. We have all of the availability of Christ who now lives within us by his spirit and we may trust him in those times. So rejoice always doesn't mean that you have to enjoy everything. It just means that you say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not alone. One more thing on this point. We need to learn to embrace the difficult things in our lives and allow them to humble us. It is always best to be humbled by affliction than it is by our own sin. Be humbled by uh, affliction. Don't be humbled by rebellion because there's always a price to pay. And God is going to use these things to bring us to the end of ourselves, to bring us to the point of repentance where we begin to exercise faith in Christ because he's the only option we have and we begin to rejoice, not because of a feeling, but because of truth truth. I'm glad I'm not alone. Furthermore, just on a side note, three times in the New Testament, scripture calls you and me to humble ourselves. Humble yourself so that God doesn't have to. And learn to embrace the difficult things which humble you. Secondly, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. You know, there were three habits that Jesus had uh, in the gospel accounts. 
It says it was his, it was his custom uh, to go to the synagogue where he heard the scriptures read. They had kind of like a Bible reading plan there that they went through. It was his custom to teach people. And it was also his custom or his habit to get away alone and pray. Those were the three habits of Jesus. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to do something, they didn't say, Lord, teach us to preach. They didn't say, uh, Lord, teach us to heal. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to lead, be good leaders. They didn't say that. Their request was, Lord, teach us to pray. Because they had been around Jesus to watch him pray and, and observe the Father answering his prayers that they wanted to pray in that way. They asked him to pray. If you look at the writings of Paul, Paul wrote six different prayers in his letters. It would be a good study to study the prayers of Paul. But what's significant is that five of the six prayers of Paul were written from prison. I would suggest to us that he learned the ministry and service of prayer there. And if you think about it, the ministry of prayer does not uh, have many of the limitations that other forms of ministry do. You don't have to raise money to pray. You don't have to travel to pray. You don't have to have a staff to pray. And a life of limited circumstances doesn't mean that we have limited influence. Pray without ceasing. Prayer is actually considering my need, Christ's problem. It's very simple. Prayer is considering my need, Christ's problem. And I don't know what it is. I don't do that often enough. I go to somebody else with my problem first. I should be going to Jesus first. We have formal times of prayer at Bodensielf. We start out each day in prayer with us as a staff. And so from 8 to 8.30 every day outside of Sunday, we meet together and pray. We don't have a devotional sign-up list because that didn't work. Too many people either forgot or had their day off after they signed up. So we just read a, 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 a chapter of scripture. We read it in English and German. And then we run down some requests for torchbearers for Bodensdorf, personal requests. And then we stand in groups of three and we pray all at the same time. But there's another form of prayer that I want to make us aware of, and it's this one. In Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1, we read about this event when Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. In other words, he tasted the wine before the king drank it in case there was poison in it. And it says in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1, and it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes that the wine was before him and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence so the, the king said to me, why is your face sad though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. 
And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? And then we have this phrase. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Verse five, and I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, and the queen sitting behind him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. Slipped in there is just this short phrase, then I prayed midstream, in the midst of his responsibilities. Then I prayed in the middle of a conversation. This is part of what it means to trust Jesus. Carry on a continual unheard conversation with him throughout the day. As the need comes up, give it over to him immediately. And I've realized that you can sit in a staff meeting and engage with the staff, fulfill your responsibilities, and be praying at the same time. Who said you have to close your eyes and fold your hands when you pray? If that were the matter, I'd be dead by now because I like to pray when I'm in a car. Just learn to carry on a conversation with Jesus. Give all of your needs over to him. All of him is available to all of me and he dwells within me. But he longs that I engage with him. A man by the name of Gerhard Terstegen, he, he was a, a very spiritual man back in the 16, 17th and 18th centuries. He said this, this is your constant work to remain self-aware and to walk with the Lord in the hidden place of your spirit as if you and he were the only ones in the world. I like that. Walk with the Lord in your spirit as if you and he were the only ones in the world and we engage with him in prayer, in a conversation. And then in everything give thanks. And as Charles was mentioning this, I was sitting there saying, you're taking away my message. <laughs> but it's good. Faith is always expressed in the attitude of gratitude. Faith says thank you, not please. Because faith is always a consideration of and relying upon that which has already been done and given. And in any situation, I may reckon with the presence of Christ in the present tense. And I need to learn how to develop this attitude of gratitude and just thank the Lord Jesus. He dwells in me. And I can be saying that throughout the day as I'm engaged in my responsibilities throughout the day. And for me, and I've mentioned this uh, over and over again, but I realized that sometimes I've adopted a vocabulary that I learned in the church that I have had to abandon. And so many times I had heard prayed, Lord, please be with us. Uh, Lord, please go with us. 
Um, Lord, we invite you into our presence. And that vocabulary actually taught me how to deal with the absence of Christ from my life instead of the presence of Christ in my life. I was praying myself into unbelief. I never need to ask the Lord to be with me when he is. I never need to ask the Lord to go with me when he lives in me. I never need to invite him into my presence when he's already there. And somebody will come up and say, yeah, Peter, but that's not what we mean. It's a matter of semantics. I understand that. But I am so slow to exercise faith. I need every reminder possible that Jesus has not left me and he never will. And I can thank him in every situation. Personally, I'm convinced if we would put ourselves to obeying that, we would realize the presence of Christ in our life in a new way. I think that psychologists usually say it takes about six weeks to develop a habit. And before we give up on that, why don't we practice that? Why don't we we put feet on our faith and practice that for six weeks? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you live in me. Thank you right here in this situation. You dwell in me. I want to abide in you. Well, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 23 and 24 says, Believe in the name of Jesus Christ and secondly, love one another. That's how we abide in him. Love one another. Again, I quote Oswald Chambers. I've done this already this week, but he said one time, drink deep and full of the love of God and you will not demand the impossible from earth's loves. Drink deep and full from the love of God and then you won't demand the impossible from earth's loves. The most common substitute for Christ in our lives is other Christians. And sometimes we are expecting from Christians what only Christ can be and give. I come to abide in Christ and then abiding in Christ, I come to give to others. I come to give to others. And the command of Jesus that John is referring to is found in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus said, a new commandment I have given to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And notice that he said there, you disciples love one another. He doesn't say love the people who don't yet know me. Of course we should. But the command is specific in that he says, love one another. Friends, if love is not what determines our fellowship in the church, then we do not have a gospel to share with the world. It's that simple. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. If the gospel doesn't work in the church, we don't have a gospel to offer this world. And I am very conscious of the fact 
in the position that we occupy in torchbearers, there are a lot of things that are dividing Christians today, and I don't even need to mention him, but it's unfortunate because we're allowing issues instead of Christ to be de the determining factor in our fellowship. And it's damaging our testimony. If ever a world needed to see a group of people functioning in healthy, loving relationships, it's today. Because there's so much fracture and so much division around us. Not only is this a challenge, but it's a tremendous opportunity. A tremendous opportunity. You bring people who don't know Christ into the fellowship of the church, and it can be one of the most powerful testimonies that they will ever have. When Gabby and I uh, got married, we married in a church in our neighborhood, and then we had the celebration at Bodensio because the price was right. And so we had this celebration, and then the next day, we came back to say goodbye to some of the guests who had come from overseas. And one of the guests who had come to our wedding was my grandmother, who was well over 80 years old. She came with two aunts, and she came and attended the wedding. And as we were saying goodbye to her, she said something very interesting. She said, you know, I've been to many weddings in my life, but here there was a different spirit. That's the presence of Jesus. And when people come into our presence, they sense him. So one day I'm, I'm walking along the road in Fischbach in the, in the neighborhood where I live and a lady came out to take her garbage can back into the garage after it had been emptied and I said hi to her and as soon as I opened my mouth in Germany, people know that I'm not a nat natural born German, I speak with an accent. And so I introduced myself and I said I, 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 I worked at Bodensehof and then her eyes got big and she said, well that's very interesting. She said, you know, last year before New Year's, two teenage girls called me and asked me if they could rent a room in my bed and breakfast over New Year's. And I said, no way. Two teenage girls over New Year's, I'm not going to do that to myself. And then they said, oh, that's too bad. We wanted to go to Bodenseelf to the New Year's conference. Oh, Bodenseelf. Oh, you can come and rent my, my bed and breakfast, no problem. And then she looked at me and she said, you know, Mr. Reed, those guests who stay here from Bodensehof, they're different. Let me tell you why. This past summer, she again had guests from Bodensehof. These are farmers. They're very simple people. And it was the harvest time for their pears. And these guests from Bodensehof realized that they needed to get the, the, the pears in quick because the weather was going to allow it. Some who were involved in farming and agriculture know that dynamic. Well, this couple went to Bodensehof, got about 20 people, and they went and then just cleared the orchard as it needed to be cleared. And this couple has come to us because we have a neighborhood barbecue and we invite all the neighborhoods because we're not the quietest neighbors and we just want to say thank you. And they come and this woman came and the first time she came, she said, I don't belong here because they're Catholic. This is their second marriage 
And the church has said, you're living in damnation. You have no hope beyond the grave. And they just feel so, so unspiritual. I said, of course you belong here. You are good neighbors. Thank you. It can be one of the most powerful testimonies to bring people who don't yet know Jesus into the fellowship of the church. And we always must remember, that's where Jesus is. And our responsibility is to love one another. And that's how we abide in him. You see, the, the life of Christ is the life of love. The life of Christ within me is interested in others. In fact, if you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, there are nine different characteristics there. I'm sure there are more, but there are nine there. And if you look at it carefully, only three of those words apply to me. Joy, peace, and self-control. The other six have to do with, with what I'm to give others. Others. The life of Christ is others-oriented. And if I would abide in Christ and be engaged in caring for and loving others, that's how I'm going to know his presence in my life. That's what he's there for. And the last thing I would say about that is this. You know, the more I am called upon to serve others, the less I have time for myself. And that's not too bad because my free time has not served me well. We will sin more when we're alone, more in our free time than when we are saddled with responsibility and are called upon to care for others. And the paradox of the Christian life is that the more you're concerned about others, the more fresh and vital you stay in Christ. That's how you abide in him. So there's a lot to practice in what we've talked about this morning and seen in God's word. It's all a matter of obedience. It's all a matter of obedience. And if I have not been obeying in trusting Christ and thanking him for his presence, maybe it's time to repent. If I've not been obeying him and, and hence abiding in him because I haven't been loving somebody around me, then perhaps I need to repent. And in doing so, we will know the presence and the sufficiency of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you've made things very clear so that we might know these things, so that we might be able to make them a matter of obedience, not intellectual pursuit, but a moral decision before you, Lord. And Jesus, I thank you so much that we don't have to ask you to go with us when we leave this tent because you live in us. I want to thank you that you have made yourself available to us and Lord, I'd pray that you would teach us to rejoice always, to engage with you in prayer, and Lord, teach us how to say thank you in spite of everything that is going around, on around us or within us. Thank you, Lord. May your word bear fruit in the days to come for your own name's sake. Amen. Thank you. God bless you.